0: Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you invite us into your presence right now in this place. And every morning when we get up, Lord, you are there to greet us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us today to be who you've made us to be, that we would live out our identity. We would rejoice in you. We would claim your promises as our own, and we would know that you are so good. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase or not. I'm guessing you have practice makes perfect. What a bunch of baloney, huh? I mean, okay, on the little tasks you might be able to do that, but on the big stuff, come on. You know that. You're never going to quite perfect. That's just not something that fits us. I had a basketball coach. He was my traveling basketball coach beginning in 1976, and I had him for five seasons, same coach. And man, he understood this of, of the hard work. You're not going to be perfect. And we live by a principle. Before we practice, before we game, at the end, TPQACS Tigers. And that was driven into us. And this is 1976. T, teamwork and acknowledgement. P, positive attitude. Q, quitters never win and winners never quit. A, all for one and one for all. C, confidence in yourself. S, success is peace of mind, which is a direct result of self-satisfaction and knowing you did your best to become the best that you're capable of becoming. Isn't it amazing? As a 28-year-old now, I still remember it. (laughs) But we lived in it. It shaped us. It was our identity. We were the Blaine Spring Lake Park Tigers. That was who we were. It impacted how we played, our connection with each other. That's who I was. John is driving that point home with us again. Last week we talked about that we walk with confidence knowing who we are and today we consider that out of that confidence of our identity is be who you are. Walk in it. Enjoy it. John is it, we're about halfway through first John now. And and he made very clear right at the beginning of this letter that he wrote it for this reason. In verse 4, we write this to to make our or your joy complete. Writing this for your joy, that you would live in joy, that you would, you would enjoy being who you are. And the way that he did this was he was in a, in a battleground with, he wanted the church in this early stage, first century, at the end of the first century, to be grounded in the truth. And he was doing battle with this group that, if you've been here for weeks, you know the Gnostics. And the Gnostics didn't really believe in, in Jesus and his role as our, as our Savior. And he was dealing with their lies and also with their spiritual pride that, that, that was tempting to think you're a big deal. It still is a temptation in, in the church today. But it, the, in Gnosticism, they believe that they would acquire this, this knowledge. They would require this enlightenment that would put them kind of above everybody else. Again, that, that superior uh, sense of their spirituality. And one of the things that is, they just didn't buy into sin. They just didn't buy into it. And it would show up in two ways. And the first one is they flat out would deny sin. They believed that it just didn't exist because they'd have these ascetic practices and, and this inner enlightenment that they would just deny that they were sinners. The second way that they would do it was that they would claim that sin is irrelevant because they were big on, on saying that anything physical doesn't matter. So those, Therefore, sin happens in, in this physical realm. Therefore, it's insignificant. And John, in his letter, is telling us in this morning that how we live matters. And how I live and how you live is a reflection of who we belong to, of where we're coming from and and how we're we're living that out. So this morning, again, it is the idea of, from this passage I'm about to read, that uh, be who you are. So, got a few verses to read this morning. From uh, the third chapter of 1 John, beginning in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. That's Jesus. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children. by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is a pretty intense passage. This is, it's coming at us and it's got some difficult words if you don't have a, a broad view of scripture. And even if you do, it's very clear sin doesn't fit with our walk and our connection to God, our Heavenly Father. So, the founder of IBM was a man named Thomas J. Watson, Sr. He died six weeks after he named his son Thomas Watson, Jr., the head of IBM. He was the founder, passed it on to his son. His son described that day of that promotion, uh, described himself as the most frightened man in America. But he led IBM, and he led it incredibly well. He led it through the development of the computer era, and there was tenfold growth for IBM during this junior's reign. Later on in life, after he had had hung it up and was retired, he looked back and he made this statement. He said, his success was made possible by his dad's confidence in him. And even, especially the acceptance of him during his college years where he wasn't studying and applying himself. This was quoted in another uh, 1995 cover story for U.S. News and World Report where the cover story article was simply titled Dad is Destiny. Now you could say mom, but, but today we're looking at our Heavenly Father, we're looking at that uh, viewpoint, and, and out of the text comes this idea that as we, as we go through life, John is pointing out to us that there's two possible spiritual fathers. Our father in heaven or the father of lies? And which one are we living like? Which one are we confidently uh, claiming as our identity and then being who we are? So that's what, again, what we're looking at this morning. And the idea that Scripture is very clear that as we walk through life, and remember I said uh, practice makes perfect and we kind of go, nah, uh, nah, we, we need grace and we do but God says that as we live our lives, all that we do can be done to the glory of God. So what does that mean? What doesn't that mean? So when we think of this, this children of the devil, so to speak, is what it says, and, and the children of, of God, we start with sin. Sin is very present here, and a proper understanding of sin. It's interesting how sin is, is so debated. Uh, so, so many people have all these various opinions on it, and I found it kind of interesting so that the originator of sin, so to speak, the, the progenitor, where it comes from, is referred to the father of lies, who's trying to create chaos. Why not start it at the very beginning of his main thing that you guys would just argue about what sin is? So we go to Scripture. Scripture has a lot to say about it, but it's just three passages, real quick statements from Romans 14, everything that does not come from faith is sin. Later later in 1 John chapter 5, all wrongdoing is sin. James chapter 4, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So, but I do want to mention right now again, as John said early on, remember, that Christians are not going to be perfect. Not a single one of you is perfect. you won't be the side of heaven. He wants that very clear if you ever think that, you're believing a lie. He wants us to know about grace and mercy, but yet don't sin. And we've been talking about this over the past few weeks. that that's the way it is, and it's both. It's grace. And Nick, do what's right. Do what's good, and rejoice in it. So the implications of our text are, which one? We look at, at, Paul, I think, does a good job of expressing this, this drive that we should have as, as Paul, the greatest missionary the world has ever known, amazing man of God that don't we all look forward to meeting someday. Um, he, in Romans chapter 7, describes himself as, why do I do the things I shouldn't do? And how come I don't do the things I should do? That's Romans 7. He just lays that out there. And then if you're familiar, then then chapter 8 kicks in and he just rejoices and says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there's this balance that God alone can strike in us that doesn't diminish one or the other, but that calls us into this exciting walk with the Lord. But, But the the religious community all through the ages have, have diminished sin, tried to kind of turn it down into something you can tame, something that you don't feel bad about. And this was no different in the days of Jesus. And if you remember, some of you, the, the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus because they had decided to eliminate so much of the, of, the, of the power of the law that has to do with your heart positioning and your, your connection with the Lord and this it, it had been done in such a way that he walks into the presence of Jesus. Of course, he, he acknowledges him as someone who's amazing, but didn't know him as God Almighty. And he says, well, what do I need to do to Jesus? I've never sinned, basically. And Jesus looks at him, and, and if you're familiar with the story, he said, sell everything. Because Jesus knew his heart had a sin problem, which was he was worshiping money. He was worshiping status. Whatever money could give to him, he didn't want to give it up. So for us today, this, this, this power of sin is something that we, we know we struggle with, against hopefully. And we know that we need help. We acknowledge, God, it will hurt me It'll hurt my relationship with you. And sin, my sin, will make me struggle to have good relationships with you. And God wants to heal us of that. In the small catechism, and I could ask any confirmation student I've ever had, and they would answer this immediately, what is sin, according to the small catechism? Sin is everything that is contrary to God's holy law. But what I love about the catechism, what I love about how Luther teaches it is, okay, you've got that, and and I'm guessing you kind of go, yeah, well, kind of knew that. But then he doesn't end like that. He says, and God's law is set forth so that His God's goodness and his love can reign over creation. Oh, he turns that into something that's so magnificent. Do you believe that? Do you rejoice in that? Because what that means, for instance, is when you look at the first commandment, and it is, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, I've actually heard people when I've been in kind of debates with about this, about Christianity and stuff, who've said, right out of the gate, Nick, what's that God, he got an ego problem or something? He got an identity crisis that he needs to tell everybody that he's God alone? And this is where it's like, okay, I see where you're coming from, but you're completely wrong. Because for instance, even on that one, we know, hopefully, those of us who are in this room who are children of God, who are being who we are, know that he does that to set us free. He wants us to know that any other God we pursue is a false God. Any other God that we chase after will not deliver. And he wants us to know that he wants to set us free. As opposed to the father of all lies who began this right in the beginning of the, of the, with the fall. I'm going to read a couple scripture passages. One on, on the fall and how it happened and, and how the, the uh, father of lies is, introduces himself and then the recreation that comes that brings us back into, the, into God's family. So from Genesis 3, uh, now, this, now the serpent said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? In other words, what he's saying, the paraphrased version is, Isn't that God limiting? Man, you need to run the show of your life. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the, tr- from the trees in the, in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. He said, say, you will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable to gain wisdom, she ate it. And she believed the lie. And she went down that path. That one way or another we can all relate to in a million different ways in our lives. The temptation to go a different path. So Jesus comes on the scene. And in John chapter 8, he's being confronted by people who are saying, "Uh, we don't like you. We don't take you for who you claim to be. And then these, these um, rulers of the law, these, these Jewish big shots say, uh, Jesus is declaring to them, I have come to set you free from this, the, the prison of sin that you are in. I will set you free. Their response is basically, we don't need you, Jesus. We are children of Abraham, they say. And then a couple verses later, they say, Our, the only father we've ever had is God himself. And Jesus' response to that in verse 42 of chapter 8 is Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar. And the father of all lies. I find it really interesting that that Jesus said that is his native language. That means that's your, That's who you're. That's your birth. That's who you are. From birth, that's your identity. You can see when you when Jesus uses this kind of language that Jesus acknowledges that Nick needs a new birth. I need a new starting point. I need to have a new seed of a beginning that He alone can bring into my heart and my mind and my soul. Because the, the, what's natural is to be a children who believes lies, a child who believes lies, who is all about themselves. And God wants us, wants to claim us as his own to be free sides, God would say, do it my way and you will enjoy my goodness and you will be who you are. And in all these different ways, the voice of the enemy speaks, do it your own way. Who knows better than you? Do it however you want. You are in charge of you. Who will guide your life? In the, early 19, or in the early 20th century, there was a famous actor, a cowboy, but he was most famously known as a social commentator, and he would use humor and, and insightful quotes often. His name was Will Rogers. A couple examples, uh, he said this, Advertising is the art of convincing people to spend money they don't have for something they don't need. Good judgment comes from experience. And a lot of that comes from bad judgment. Well, he was born in 1879. And if you were born in those days, it was very common that you wouldn't have a birth certificate. And the story goes like this, that he was going to travel and he needed a passport. So he shows up uh, and the clerk asks him for his birth certificate. And he says, I don't have one. She says, well, I I need one to issue you a passport. And he asked her, "Um, why? And she said, So I have proof of your birth. To which he said, Well, I'm here, ain't I? (laughs) Proof of your birth. I'm here. Here I am. Here's my life. Here's me being. We struggle with being. When we declare our birth, what are we saying? Lord, help us to be who we are. Another story he told, I think, also ties into this that there was a distraught man who was visiting a psychiatrist, just distraught. And uh, the man thought that he was dead. So he goes to the, the psychiatrist and they do the best they can with techniques that they think might work. Nothing worked. Still thinking he's dead. Finally, he had one last strategy. He asked the question Do you think? dead people bleed. And the man said, that's ridiculous. Of course they do not bleed. He takes a pin, asks him to hold out his hand, pokes his finger, out comes the blood. He looks at it and goes, would you look at that? Dead men do bleed. I tell you that one because it's like, once we get ourselves set that we know the way way things work, we can miss out when when the truth is before us. Makes me think of when I was a kid, and it might surprise you, but I did get in trouble sometimes, and Dad, if it was a really bad one, and I was a little scared even, he would take me to the side, and, and he would say, I remember it actually many times, Nick, we don't do that in this family we don't do that in this family now if I took that wrong and kind of literally I would think I'm not part of the family I think I don't fit that I'm gone that I'm kicked out but that wasn't the intention and it wasn't what what it meant to me it was Nick this is my loving father I want you to do what is right, what is good, what will bless you. That is what you should do. Instead of thinking, oh, there's blood, I'm dead, or I'm kicked out of the family. God wants us to come to him. I love the verse in, in, uh, in, in, first, or in Isaiah chapter 1. God says this, come now and let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they will be like wool. God wants us to come to him with these questions, with these complexities, and let him shape us because he knows our dilemma better than we know it ourselves. He knows our our tendency to go off of places that are not going to bless us or those around us, and he wants to reason with us. He wants to love us and teach us truth. He wants us to know who we are and then be. He wants us to uh, have, be a new creation. He wants us to be righteous. What does that mer- word mean, righteousness? Because the children of God, it makes very clear here, are, are righteous. Righteous means simply right, that you are right. And God's righteousness dealt with my sin and your sin. God is right every single time, never wrong, not once, not ever, never will be, he's right. And God saw my sin and he saw your sin. He didn't deny it, he didn't ignore it. He dealt with his righteous justice and his righteous mercy and love. He brought them together at the cross and made me his own and set us free, and poured righteousness into our lives. And when we question God's goodness, and we wonder if it's, if it's true in these other moments in our lives, we're invited time and time again to go to the cross to trust the goodness of God. And we do this in our own life, don't we? I mean, for me, if, people, if someone would say, hey, is, is, is Barb good? Can you count on her, Nick? I go, man, yeah, for 30 years she's been good to me. She's cared for me. She's loved me. So why would I ever think it's done? Jesus died for you. So in this complexity of life, when sin temptations are coming at us, do you trust the goodness of God to follow him, to believe him because he is good? And in those moments when we're tempted and, and we, we we doubt his goodness and we think that we can do it gooder. That's intentional about the ridiculousness of that I could do it better than God. We're invited to trust him. We're invited to be honest. That when we think that sometimes maybe a possession is more important than a clear conscience. Or when, when we might think that, that, that power is better to have than peace. God comes to us and teaches us and he shapes us. He invites us into his presence day after day, time and time again, to abide in him, to be connected to him, to remain in him. And so when those temptations to sin come, we bring Jesus to bear on it. We bring bring the Father to bear on it. So when you are tempted to speak those angry words that you should not speak, when you are tempted to put your eyes where they should not go, abide with Jesus. Be with Jesus. In that moment, oh, that's kind of uncomfortable. Yep, it is. And I guarantee it will be better that when we see instead of this, Lord, we trust you here that it's better. Last thing I just want to say is, it's made very clear in verse 8 of this passage that Jesus came to do some destruction. He came to destroy the work of Satan. He came literally to, to remove his power in this world and ultimately on each of us. That word that's used there means to dismantle. It means to destroy and tear apart. That is God's purpose. But here's what's so interesting. God didn't come just to destroy evil and opposition. He was very particular because if he just came to destroy all rebellion, not any of us would be left. In his amazing capacity beyond comprehension, in his goodness, how God alone possesses it, he came in such a way to break through and face our sin and our failure in such a way to destroy it and then deliver grace and mercy and love to claim us and make us his own, even in the rebellion, to take us to himself and to set us free. The same Greek word here that's used for destroy or destruction is the same Greek word that's used when he called Lazarus forth from the tomb. And he asked him, take off his grave clothes and set him free. So this morning, be who you are, knowing that Jesus Christ has come to each one of us with all the stuff on us that's dirty and that shouldn't be there, and he has removed it and claimed you into the family of God and by grace and by love and by his power of the resurrection, says be who you are. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for freedom. Lord God, we thank you that you are the ruler of all. And Lord, help us to believe that. Help us to trust that. Lord Jesus, you are goodness. You are love. You are grace. You are right every time. And you love us. So Lord Jesus, we ask you to reign over everything In each of our lives. In your name we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.